0: It is extremely rare when something happens in little old Wheaton, Illinois, 60187, and becomes news all over the world. But last month, that happened. And now, almost daily, what happens right here in Wheaton is being published in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Guardian in the UK, the Atlantic, Al Jazeera, and everyone's got an opinion, and everyone's upset. Now, for those of you who have been blissfully spared the social media tsunami, what happened was this. On December 10th, Dr. Larisha Hawkins, a political science professor at Wheaton College, posted on her Facebook page that during Advent, to show solidarity with Muslims, she would wear the hijab, the headscarf worn by some women in conservative Islam. And she explained that she was doing this for several reasons, and chief among them was, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because we worship the same God. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Now think about it. When my Muslim optometrist goes to Juma Prayers on Friday at noon, and when I come here to Church of the Resurrection on Sunday morning at 11, are we worshiping the same God? Well, that question started a contentious debate with Christian voices weighing in, yes, we do worship the same God, or no, we don't, not even close, or it's all semantics. How would you answer? You may be confused or uncertain. LifeWay Research released a study this week that showed that 46% of Americans think that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, and 47%, a statistical tie, disagree. So, now, even if you have no connection with Wheaton College, you just happened to drive here this morning from Lombard or Naperville, I think you still need to know. Because, if you are a Christian, this question goes to the heart of your faith. So as a Christian, you deserve to be clear. You and, all, you and I also need to know, just simply as a citizen in today's world, over half the people on the planet follow either Christianity or Islam, and many of the news stories that we get, you cannot even begin to understand unless you understand some of the internal beliefs of each faith. And of course, closer to home, we all have neighbors, friends, co-workers who are Islamic, and for us to interact with respect, we need to understand their beliefs clearly. And so this morning, with the full support and blessing of Bishop Stewart, I have two goals for the message. The first one is this, that we would all grow in clarity. grow in clarity I, I'm calling upon myself this morning I'm calling upon every one of you here at Rez and as this sermon gets uploaded I'm, I'm calling on the wider Christian community here in Wheaton and DuPage County in the US to anyone who, who listens to become absolutely clear on this question do Christians and Muslims worship the same God as a teacher of the Bible and the Christian faith I, I would be derelict in my duty if I did not try to make this clear. In fact, I am thankful for the hard work that was caused by this sermon because it sharpened my own thinking. Now, equal to my goal that we would all grow in clarity through this message is that we would all grow in charity. Grow in clarity and grow in charity. Were you wrecked as I was four months ago? To see the picture of a three-year-old boy, Aylin Curdy, washed up on the shore in Turkey, that wrecked me. Because I remember when my son used to nap when he was three, he took the exact same posture. But little Aylin is not waking up. And he and his family were were fleeing Syria like four million other refugees. They're fleeing civil war and bombing and the Islamic State. They're suffering profoundly. And how do we grow in charity for them? And right here in Wheaton, what used to be the Assembly of God Church, is now the Islamic Center. We need to grow in charity toward our literal neighbors. And... We need to grow in charity toward other Christians. In the almost 40 years since I moved to Wheaton, I don't think I've seen a situation as emotional or divisive in the Christian community here. I see it separating profs and students and alums and administrators and there have been sit-ins and petitions and leaked documents and the most outrageous comments on all sides. And I know that for many of you today, just to know that I'm going to be speaking about this touches a raw nerve. And as a pastor, I, I feel that. I'm sensitive to that. Very much so. But as a pastor, I'll tread just as gently as I can, but as a pastor, I also have to speak up to seek peace and to pursue it. To see if I can do what I can to try to bind up any wounds within our church and in the Christian community here in town. So, wherever you're coming from this morning, I hope that you will kind of hear me out until I've finished and and then make up your mind. All right, let's jump into this first goal of growing in clarity. I want to help us get clear on this one question, one only Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? And since Jesus is such a central figure to Christianity, maybe a very good way to get into that question would be to ask, who is Jesus? And today's Bible text about the visit of the Magi does this really well. Matthew is telling us something profound this morning about who Jesus is. He's writing as someone who was raised as a monotheistic Jew, and his audience is Jews, monotheistic Jews. And he's showing them and us these things There's three signs here that set Jesus far apart from any other person, any other sage, prophet, wisdom figure, or teacher. And he doesn't want us to miss it. So let's look at those. Sign number one is this unusual star. You see that in verses one and two. These wise men or magi are scholars. They're probably from the area we would call today Iraq, Iran, or Saudi Arabia. And they're astronomers, and they're good at reading the night skies. And so they see this star coming up over Judea. It may have been a comet, it may have been a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, but it was bright, and it was unusual. And the Magi probably learned from Jewish exiles this prophecy... In Numbers 24, a star will rise from Jacob. A ruler will rise in Jacob. And they put it all together and they figured out a new king of the Jewish people must have just been born. And they travel hundreds of miles to see him. Now, if you know your Hebrew scriptures as Matthew's readers did, you know nobody gets an astronomical sign like this at their birth. Not Moses, not David, Not Elijah, not the most prominent figures in the tradition. Matthew is saying Jesus is unique, he's different from, he's higher than, he's greater than any of the greatest sages or prophets. Sign number two, scripture after scripture after scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew shows us that three different times, with astonishing, mind-boggling levels of accuracy, Words that were spoken more than 700 years before Jesus is born spell out exact place names in his life. Did you get that? Places. That's crazy. He would be born in a town called Bethlehem. That was prophesied by Micah. You see that in verses 5 and 6. That this Messiah would then spend time in Egypt. Prophesied by Hosea. You see that in verses 13 through 15. Out of Egypt have I called my son and then finally that he, this this child who would be born in Bethlehem spend time in Egypt would end up in Nazareth that is derived from a prophecy in Isaiah verse 23 now imagine if dante who wrote 700 years ago predicted in his writings that someone would arise who was born in philadelphia grew up in maryland and then lived in chicago which is my life It'd be preposterous. You're like, that's not going to happen. That's exactly what happened with Jesus Christ. And there are 350 more prophecies as mind-boggling as that. All uniquely fulfilled in this person. And Matthew is saying, Jesus is unique. He's radically different from any other religious figure of any time or place. Now, sign number two. You've got an astronomical sign. You've got scripture after scripture after scripture, prophetically fulfilled. Sign number three is the most astonishing. Jesus is worshipped. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. The wise men come into the home there where Mary and Jesus are, and they bow down in worship, and they worship. And then as you do in worship, you bring an offering, a sacrifice, and they bring out these expensive, lavish gifts, and leave them behind. Now, think about this. Worshipped. A human being being worshipped. Matthew, remember, is a Jew who was raised on the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he was raised on the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods besides me. And yet he's telling us that the heroes of the story, approvingly, came into this house, bowed down, and worshiped Jesus. Anywhere else in Scripture, if somebody other than God, an apostle, an angel, whatever, starts to get worshiped, they immediately are told to stop and get up and get off back on their feet and to stop that worship immediately. Not here. And Matthew is telling us, don't you see that Jesus is utterly unique? He's divine. He deserves our worship. And that's just this text. I could go to many other places in the Bible where it says that Jesus is God and was with God from the beginning. I could show you that it says He is the image of the invisible God or that through Him everything was made. And it's right here that Christianity and Islam start to push apart. Now, Muslims believe in Jesus, Isa, as a prophet, and that he was born of a virgin and is coming again. But they categorically deny that Jesus is divine. The Quran in Surah 5, verse 72, is so opposed to this belief that it condemns Jesus' worshippers to hell. Islam also disagrees with the Christian teaching, Jesus died for your sins. In fact, most Muslims even deny that Jesus was crucified. Typical of this would be the Islamic site answeringchristianity.org, which explains, and I quote, Jesus never died. He rested for three days in the cave. He was healed and received medicine and massaging from Mary Magdalene and others during this time. And ultimately, he unwound his winding sheets and exited the cave in his original physical body alive. This is how he rose from the so-called dead, unquote. So Jesus is not divine, he didn't die for your sins, and he never rose from the dead. Now, you take out of Christianity the divinity of Jesus, his atoning sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead, and it's like popping a balloon. It just collapses in a heap. The Bible even says you take one of those things, the resurrection out of Christianity, and Christians are the most pitiable people in the entire world. But that's just getting started. Christians with joy call God our Father. We're taught by Jesus to do that. No Muslim can accept that. The Quran in Surah 5, verse 18, tells Muslims to rebuke Jews and Christians who say, We are God's children and His beloved ones. Say, No, you are but mortals that just like others He has created. Then add in that in Islam, the Holy Spirit is not God, but a creature like an angel. So the only way that you or I could say Christians and Muslims worship the same God is if we are willing to say God is not Father, Jesus is not God, He never died for your sins and rose again, the Holy Spirit is not God, and if you do that, you cannot affirm even one of the belief statements that Christians must make in order to be baptized. You cannot become a Christian. This is why, friends, Nabil Qureshi, who grew up as a Muslim and now is a Christian, says, quote, The Christian God, both in terms of what he is and who he is, is not just different from the Muslim God, he is fundamentally incompatible. According to Islam, worshipping the Christian God is not just wrong, it sends you to hell. They are not the same God. Now, I think that's clear. But we cannot stop there because we must honestly and with integrity ask, why is it then that some very smart Christian theologians are saying the opposite? And I will spare you the hundreds of thousands of words I've read and say that they basically bring forward three arguments. And although I don't have time to present them as fully as I would like, I'm going to try to present them as fairly as I can, in shorthand, explain why they fail to persuade me, but also say what I think we can learn from them. You ready? Let's try this. Argument number one. I call it the only God in town argument. Now, this argument says this. If there is only one God anywhere available, and you worship God, and I worship God, then our prayers and our worship must ultimately be worshiping the same God. Now, the problem with this argument is that it assumes there's some kind of generic God But nobody worships a generic god. Everybody who worships, worships a specific god revealed to them through their authoritative sources of revelation. In Islam, that's the Quran and the Hadith. In Christianity, the Old and New Testaments. And as I've tried to just show, those two gods, the ones that actually get worshipped, are radically different and unable to be reconciled. Suppose that I say to you, for example... There's only one best college football team in the country. And you go, I totally agree. And then we talk a little further and I find out you're thinking Alabama and I'm thinking Clemson. We aren't thinking the same thing at all because it turns out there's no generic best team. There's only specific teams with specific names. Now, even though this argument fails to persuade me, here's what I think we can learn from it and here's what I think may be the intent of those who bring it forward we can honor the common intent of Muslim worshipers. We may not share the same content, but we may share the same intent. So as Christians, we can truthfully say to our Muslim friends, look, my life project is to worship the one true and living God, and that's your life project too. Let's talk about what your faith teaches about God and mine. Argument number two, the close enough for me argument. Now, this argument says there are so many common characteristics of the Muslim God and the Christian God that they are sufficiently similar to say they're the same. Now, it is true that the Christian and Muslim views of God are similar in some ways. We both believe there's only one God. We both believe that God created the world, sent prophets to guide his people, and will judge all people at the end of history. But to me, those similarities are dwarfed by the dissimilarities and the core beliefs that are mutually contradicting. Similar means similar. It doesn't mean same. Imagine that you and I are out here in Res Cafe after the service sipping coffee and you say something about driving here this morning and I say, you drove here this morning? Me too. And then I find out you drove in an SUV. Me too. What color is yours? Great. Mine too. We drove here in the exact same car. No, we didn't. You drove here in your car, I drove here in my car. Similar means similar. It doesn't mean same. Now, there is something I think, though, that we can all learn from this argument. As we talk with our Muslim friends, we can and we should begin with what we hold in common. We highlight the similarities in order to create a safe place in which we can then dialogue about the differences. You see, it's when you and I become absolutely clear in our minds and hearts about the differences that we earn the right to talk about the similarities. This is what Paul does when he goes to Athens and preaches Christianity to the pagan Greek philosophers. He is absolutely clear in his mind of the differences between Christianity and paganism. But because he's so clear, he can then lead with the similarities, as one of your own poets has said. And then use that as a way to open up some dialogue space to then compare the differences. All right, now the third and final argument, argument number three, goes like this. But what about the Jews? Jews are monotheists who deny the divinity of Jesus and the Trinity, yet Christians don't say they have a different God, so why single out Muslims? To me, the difference between the situation of Jews and Muslims is large, and it is clear. Jews and Christians begin at the same place. We agree on every word of the law, the prophets, and the writings, what we call the Old Testament. We share that completely. Judaism is, therefore, like the foundation of a house that Christianity then builds a first story upon. But Islam does not begin with that revelation and in many places denies that revelation. We might say that Islam takes some shutters and some shingles off of the Jewish Christian house and then goes down the street and builds an entirely different one. But here's what I think we can learn from this argument. We do and must accept that Jesus is unalterably unique. He towers above the Christian faith and says, no one comes to the Father but through me. And that is true for the Jew, as well as the Muslim, as well as the agnostic, as well as the person who's given no thought to God at all. Now, if this is as much time as I can give to the growing in clarity, but there's an excellent article available at the doors from our good friends at Christianity Today if you want to pursue this in depth. Now, in the time that remains to me, I need to say that as much as we Christians need to grow in clarity, is there not an equal and compelling need that we would all grow in charity? On December 4th, Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, the largest Christian college in the world, told his students in chapel, quote, I've always thought that if more good people had concealed carry permits then we could end those Muslims before they walked in and killed them, unquote. Now he later said that he meant Islamic terrorists, not all Muslims. But would this not still rank as one of the most outrageous and unchristian statements ever made by a Christian leader? I loved what students at Wheaton wrote a few days later in the campus paper. uh, Quote, We as evangelical Christians hold that Christ calls us not to react with religious oppression or violence. Instead, we have the responsibility to live out fearless love. And just as I would not want someone to judge all Christians by the remarks that were just made on December 4th by Jerry Falwell, the actions of a few, we need to not think all Muslims because of the actions of a few. On the day that two Muslims pulled the trigger in San Bernardino, there were 3,300,000 other U.S. Muslims who got up and went to work as anesthesiologists and pharmacy assistants and small business owners. In fact, statistics would say that you and I have a much higher chance of being shot and killed by a citizen of Chicago than by a Muslim living in the US. And yet we don't say we hate and fear all Chicagoans because of that. So how can we show fearless love? I want to give two relentlessly practical suggestions, and I encourage us to step into those. Number one, donate to a group serving Muslim refugees. The entire Middle Eastern world is in motion and in conflict, and these people are fleeing, and they need support. Here in Wheaton, we are blessed to have World Relief, this Christian agency doing such great work in resettlement, and several of our members work there. Give generously to them. Or if you want to donate to an Anglican work, support Canon Andrew White, whose ministry works in Baghdad. Number two, invite a Muslim coworker, student, or friend to your house for dinner, especially if they are recent immigrants. Rez has supported the work of Christian missionaries Pat and Joan Crayer for many years. They've lived in Muslim contexts for 28 years. And I Skyped Pat this week and I said, Pat, what would you want to tell our congregation about this subject? And he said, build bridges. He said, I moved to Pakistan in 1984. Do you know how long it took before I finally felt home in that culture? Eight years. I didn't know the language, I didn't know the culture, I didn't know the first thing. If a friend at work had a, had a funeral in their family, I didn't know what to say or do. And he said, and the, per, the Muslim immigrant to the U.S. is in that exact situation, and in addition, they're coming from a hospitality culture to here. They're expecting hospitality, and they're coming to a nation that they've heard is a Christian nation. They're expecting people to be Christians and to own their Christianity. And so what, what Pat was, was telling me is he said, "When we invite Christians in, when we as Christians invite Muslims in and treat them with warmth and dignity, these amazing things can happen." And I wrote down this line because it was so amazing. He said, "They experience God's love, God's life flowing through us." Now today is Epiphany Sunday, and it occurred to me that if Mary had refused... The foreign visitors who, from Arabia who showed up at her door speaking a different language and following a different religion, there would not have been an epiphany to celebrate. We might even say that they were welcomed in by Jesus. And I bet as a toddler, he was really excited. Now finally, may I remind us all, and can we hear this please, we cannot love God. The Muslim we're getting to know if we do not love the Christians we already know. My spirit was traumatized this week going online and reading some of the horrifying things that people are saying about this professor and her motives, about the administrators of Wheaton College and their motives. Do you want to know the truth, friends? Nobody has any idea what her motives are or what the administrator's motives are. And we ought to acknowledge our lack of knowledge, and we ought to find the only posture there is, which is silence, humility, and prayer. Imagine if every one of us here this morning, and there's been a thousand people here today, if we made it our heart's passion to grow in clarity and to grow in charity. If we forgave our Christian brothers and sisters from the heart, and then with complete clarity of theology in our minds and our hearts, and with charity in our lives, we opened up our homes and invited in Muslims, friends, and neighbors. Then it might truly be said, as Jesus taught us, They will know you are Christians by your love. Amen.